Well, we want to recognize a few great stories this morning in the fact that if you've been married for over 50 years, you celebrated 50 years of marriage in 2017, would you just stand your feet so we can recognize you? And I think that as they stand to their feet, we would love to celebrate. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. That is definitely the case to celebrate 50 years of wedding bliss. We're kicking off a brand new series today called Live a Great Story. How to live a great story. How do we do that? Well, that's what we're going to be talking about today. If you would like to turn to Acts chapter 4 and 5 in your Bible or smartphone or tablet, if you don't have any of those, there's a Bible in front of you, and you're able to take that Bible home as if you don't own a Bible. We'd love for you to follow along. Also in your bulletin is a listening guide. We'd love for you to get that out Follow along, take notes, and learn as we trek through this. Okay, here's the deal. Great stories have been misrepresented and misinterpreted over the years. What is a great story? Is a great story a superhero? You know, there's a, there's a new superhero movie out recently. It was Wonder Woman. Anybody seen Wonder Woman? I heard it's a really, really good film. But, it, but if that's a great story... To be honest with you, I feel like living the life of a superhero is a little bit outside of my grasp, okay? And, and maybe it's yours as well. Is a great story an athlete? Or is a great story someone who just has this unbelievable picture of superhero? What is a great story? It reminds me of a story that one time somebody told me about a, a mighty warrior. He was mounted on this incredible majestic steed. And he's walking down this road pridefully. And everyone is just naturally getting out of the way of the horse and this warrior. And as you get, people get out of the way, he, he stops. And in the middle of the road, there's this sparrow lying back down with his feet straight up in the air. And the magnificent warrior says, are you dead? But if you're not, why are you living, uh, standing, sitting in the middle of the road with your feet up in the air? And the little sparrow says, well, I'm not dead. In fact, I heard that the sky is about to fall and I'm holding it up. And the warrior just starts to laugh hysterically, slaps his thigh, tears are streaming down his face, full of laughter. He says, you silly sparrow, even if the sky was falling, even if it was falling, what in the world could you do with those spindly little sparrow-like legs? The sparrow looks at him and he says, well, look, you can only do what you can do. You can do only what you can do. And let me tell you something. When you look at your life, when you look at your streets, when you look at your community, when you look at your state, when you look at your country, and when you look at this world, let me tell you something. There is a need for us to live a great story. And we can do what we can do. There was a Gallup poll recently done. And what the Gallup poll indicated to us is that 51% of 13 to 17-year-old children said, or students should, said this, that they could not think of one adult that they would say lived a great life. Not one. Never has there been a greater need in our world today than for us to live a great story. An unbelievable story. And I believe with all my heart that that's what God wants from us. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to be jumping into this preaching series. And so I'm excited about it. We're going to define what it looks like. So are you ready? Let me ask that again, nine o'clock cloud in the balcony and on the floor. Are you ready? Awesome. All right. 
We're going to begin in Acts chapter 4. Luke kicks things off and he introduces us to several different stories. Let's look at it together. Acts chapter 4 verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions were their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So Luke introduces us to an incredible story, an incredible set of stories. We read this section of scripture and we get this overwhelming sense that these people, out of the generosity in their hearts, gave to each other out of love. There's this sincerity. There's no obligation here. There's this sincerity to them. Look, we love each other and we're going to give to one another. And Luke, right here, I believe that he is defining an element of living a great life. And this is kind of what we're going to land on this morning, and that is, is this. That Luke is teaching us to lay down possessions and pick up people. He's teaching us to, to lay down possessions and pick up people. Would you all say that together with me? Ready? To lay down possessions and pick up people. That's right. Luke is teaching us that. You know, in my house, generally, I, I, I might hear from time to time uh, words like this coming from somewhere in my house. Hey, that's mine. Put that back. Get your own. That's mine. Don't touch that. Get out of my room. I have two daughters. Okay. I'm reminded of the, the Disney movie Finding Nemo, one of my favorite animated films. And, and they finally tell us all what seagulls have been saying through the ages. And they say, mine, 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 mine. In, in the early church, you get the sense that these people, they're not saying this. They're saying, here you go, here you go, here you go. But here's the thing, you can't say here you go until you, you, you let go, right? To lay down possessions and, and, and to pick up people. And, and as we look at verse 32, look at it with me, there's this direct result with the life that is transformed in a life that is wanting to love others, to lay down possessions and pick up people. Look at it with me in verse 32. It says, all the believers. So this is a group of people who have understood a couple things. First of all, they had understood that, that Jesus had risen from the dead. That he wasn't just some good man. They had understood that he had died on the cross for their sins. That they were enslaved to sin. And their only way out from this kind of slavery of sin was Jesus Christ. And they understood this for their very life that his redemptive work on the cross was so much so that their life was daily being transformed as the Holy Spirit was now accessible to them. And as this transformational power is working in their life, they are understanding and experiences this freedom that is in Christ. Jesus Christ was recorded by the Apostle John in, in chapter 8, verse 36, to say, So if the Son sets you free, you are truly free. You see, following Jesus is not a matter of just an outward set of conformity. You know, like go to church and do this and do that and you're good. Oh, I'm done. Check the box. I'm done. No, following Jesus Christ is an inward to outward transformational experience that sets us free. It's a liberty that looks a lot like love. 
And when you follow Jesus, what ends up happening is the Spirit of God begins to create this thing in you where you want to prop up people, you want to fall in love with people, and you want to fall out of love with things. I heard a, somebody say one time that some people, they're like rocks. <laughs> and the only way that God's ever going to get anything out of them is if he bangs them over and over and over again. And even though you're just get, even then you're just going to get a few chips and you're going to get a few sparks. And then others are like sponges. And the only time that you're ever going to get anything out of those people is if they're squeezed. But then other people, they're like honeycomb. They're just dripping with sweetness. They're dripping with generosity. They're dripping with the good things of life. They're living great stories. They're, they're laying down and putting down possessions to pick up people. And this is the work of a transformed life. Stones, right, turn to sweet syrup. This is a, a great life. This is a great story. So much so, in fact, that the Romans are watching the early church, and they're like, hey, historians, they paid these historians because they wanted to document their, the greatness of Rome. They said, I want you to record this. And then the Greeks, who thought they were better than the Romans, said, you know what? Our historians, we need to record this. Why? Because this was a great story. You know why? Because when you lay down possessions and you pick up people, it grabs your heart. And it just didn't grab their heart back then, but it grabs your heart today, too. When you experience this and you see this, it grabs your soul. But then we keep on reading, and Luke would then give us two other stories. To look at. Look at it with me in Acts chapter 5, verse 1 and following. Let's read along together. It says, Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, they kept back part of the money for himself. So, first of all, they're doing it together, aren't they? There's no division there. They, they both are doing this. Okay? And, and the scripture says that they keep money back. And this is a verb that means basically they embezzle money. And, and the reason why they're embezzling money is because they had at one point in the past had told the apostles, hey, we're going to sell this land. Every single penny is going to go to the church. There was nobody holding a gun to their head, okay. But if they go back on their word, they're embezzling the money that they told, told them they would give. So Peter speaks up, verse 3. He says, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. Now, I want you to take note of something here. What is behind Ananias and Sapphira at this very minute? Well, it's Satan, as Peter has just shared with us. This is the first appearance of Satan since the crucifixion. Now, he's been there behind the scenes all along, but now he's brought to the forefront once again. He had tried to destroy the movement of Jesus, the early church, with destroying Jesus. He thought, oh, crucifixion, I got him, I'm good. Then the resurrection happened. And then he goes, okay, I'm going to persecute the early church with physical persecution. Well, that didn't do it. So you know what he's doing now? He's trying to divide and conquer from within. Whispering lies, trying to deceive, trying to destroy. And he's been doing that 2,000 years ago, and he's still trying to do that today. I, I say this all the time. That we're not a perfect church, but we're a healthy church. And you know why we're a healthy church? Is because we're unified. And we understand our goal. We understand where we're going. And we love each other. So verse 4. Peter can, is still talking here. He said, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? 
And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not lied just to human beings, but to God. Verse 5, when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who had heard what had happened. Then some young, young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. I was thinking about this week. That verse may be very encouraging to some of you who hate your jobs. Can you think of that job? Maybe your job isn't so bad after all, right? <laughs> I think that even jobs where I've had that were internships were better than that job in particular. Verse 7, about three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said. That is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men, they're the interns again. The young men came in, finding her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard these events. Now you read something like that, and maybe you've read this before, maybe you're new to this story, and you think, why in the world would Ananias and Sapphira do something like that? Why would they lie? Well, I want to give you a few thoughts of maybe why they lie. The first reason is this, is that their possessions possessed them. That their possessions possessed Ananias and Sapphira. And you're thinking, really, how in the world could that happen? Well, I want to give you an example. It's a little easier than you think it may be. There's a place in our community and all around this country, it's a, it's a, um, a place that has been built and, and extorted money, from families for many years now, and it probably will continue. And it's a place where you go and you get pizza. And then after you're done getting pizza, there's all these games all around you. And, you, and the pizza's not good, by the way, all right? I'm pretty sure they just went to Walmart and got it. Nothing against Walmart pizza, but you know what I'm saying. And so you go and play all these games, and you, you pay an, an obscene amount of money. You get these coins, and your kids begin to play these games in that one addictive bowling game. You know what I'm talking about? And you begin to do this, and these tickets come out. And at some point along the way, you're not happy with how many tickets that are coming out from your child, so you move them out of the way, and you begin to do it yourself. <laughs> Don't look at me that way, because I know you've done it too. So you're trying to do it, and you're trying to get the middle one. And, and, and here's the thing, you've done this before, but somehow in your brain you want more tickets. And the reason why you want more tickets is because you want that prize, and you want the big prize. And you can visualize that one stuffed animal that's way up on the wall that probably costs $10 that you're spending $100 to get. But you can't stop, right? So you take all your tickets. And you just spend an obscene amount of money. I mean, it's just like all these tickets, and you're so excited, and you go up with your child, and you give it to the person around the counter, and they say, congratulations, and they hand you a pencil. <laughs> a $50 pencil. This is actually one that we got right here. <laughs> but the problem with that is, is that we grow up to be adults, and we equate these tickets as dollar bills, and we think these dollar bills are going to somehow, some way, bring us significance. But what happens is the money that we equate to tickets has grossly overestimated and overpromised what happens in our life. And that's why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, 24, he says, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God 
and money. Now you may be thinking a few things. First of all, you may be thinking, okay, the preacher's talking about money. Grab your wallet. Let's get out of here while we still are good. He's getting ready to go into a building campaign. God only knows. <laughs> and that's not true, okay? Or the other thing you may be thinking is, I don't serve money, preacher. That, that, that's somebody else. That's not me. But let me just gently argue back to you for a second. If you've ever bought something that you didn't need with money that you didn't have to impress someone that you didn't like, you may serve money. If you've ever fudged on an expense report, if you've ever downloaded something illegally, teenagers or adults, if you've ever lied or misrepresented something in order to get ahead financially, well, then you may serve money. If you've ever at Disney World told your 16-year-old son that he's 11 so you would save a couple dollars, you may serve money. <laughs> and smart all at the same time, right? See, the Ananias and Sapphira, their possessions possessed them. It's the second reason why I believe that they did this is that they were addicted to and that people were the driving force in their life. That they would receive the, the praise of people. See, they had lied in order to look good in front of other people. It was an act of sheer hypocrisy. And how does something like this happen? Well, I kind of indicated earlier that Satan is gladly waiting in the wings, ready for somebody to listen to his lies. And he goes, hey, if you do this, you'll get the, the praise of people. And when you get the praise of people, you know what? You will achieve what your heart longs for. And then you get the praise of people, and you know what? It's empty. And he's been doing this for many years. And they had fallen into it. And let me just tell you something. For many, 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 many years, this has been one of my biggest issues. It started when I was really, really young. I, I, I would just tell the biggest lies. And you know the reason why? It's because I wanted to look good in front of others. I wanted the praise of people. And I would tell the most absurd lies, like things that my, like my dad had flown the Concorde to our neighbors. And he's a mechanic. And they know this, but somehow in my brain, I thought, I'm going to win the approval and praise of others. And, and I did this into high school, and it really hurt me. It really hurt things that I was trying to do and accomplish. And here's the thing. It really impacts our life. It impacts our marriage, marriages. It impacts our relationships, our work environment. It works, impacts every area of our life. And here's how it impacts your marriage. If you believe that you have to look good on the outside, you have to win the praise of people. It's going to rot your marriage. Here's, here's why. I, I was uh, sitting down with a couple, and I was doing some counseling. And the husband said this to me. Okay, preacher, you're never going to believe what I'm about to say. And then he goes on to tell me something I've heard a thousand times. And I smiled, and I looked back at him. And I said, you know what? You are just like my marriage and so many others. And you could just see the burden fall off of him. But he had been walking around trying to win the approval of others. You see, when we try to walk around and we, th we want everyone to think that our marriages are perfect, the only people that we're really fooling are ourselves. It's time to get real, folks. Now, I'm, I'm not talking about like being a dump truck every time that someone asks how you're doing. Beep, beep, and just lowering the thing and just, just hammering people. But what I'm saying is this. There's time to be real. It's okay if if you're not batting a thousand in your marriage. It's okay to have that kind of authenticity. 
if you're trying to win the praise of people in your work environment, it's going to drive you to do things that are unhealthy. It may drive you to be unethical. It may drive you to overwork, to be unhealthy. It's going to impact. If, if you're trying to win the praise of people with your relationships, it's, it's going to impact them. You, you know, here's the deal. The best way to have friends is to be real. And then to be real is to, to, to really just acknowledge the fact of who you really are. And they will then as well. And here's the thing, is God has transformed my life from the inside out, and he has spoken into my life the worth that he sees in me. And the masterpiece he created when he thought up Ray Green, over the years, the approval of people has slowly dissipated. Now, I'm not going to say it ever impacts me, but it, it doesn't rule me like it used to, and I'm able to admit, no, that's not true, that's, and be honest with people. And that's why... That, that's why being involved in a church is so important. That's why being in a room like this and then being in a group is so very important. There you get disciple. We call it growing in the gospel, right? Where you become more like Christ and you hear the truth of God's word. This is how this doesn't get a hold of you. And the third way and reason why I believe they did this is they did not grasp, Ananias and Sapphira, they did not grasp the holiness of God. They didn't understand it. I, I was thinking about this and researching it this week, and I found this incredible insight this one author gives. And so I just want to share with you what he says. You know, the reason why they were killed is that they had been close to the activity of God. When you're close to the activity of God, the seriousness of sin, seriousness of sin increases. Think of it like the temple. Every blemish is magnified. They had witnessed the cross. They witnessed his mercy. They're involved in the greatest stage the world has ever seen, the early church. And the ramifications are ramped up. And we read this passage of them dropping dead, and we go, okay, other liars haven't dropped dead. Why this, God? And maybe we should be asking the question, well, why doesn't this happen more, God? Because he, God is gracious and he's loving, but he's also just, and he's holy. And we like to discount that. We don't like to talk about that, especially in our culture today. And I love how John Piper, he uses this analogy in his book, The Pleasure of God. Great book. And, and this is what John Piper says. He says, suppose you were exploring an unknown Greenland glacier in the deep of winter. Just as you reach a cliff with spectacular views of miles of jagged ice and mountains of snow, a terrible storm breaks in. The wind is so strong that the fear rises in your heart that might blow you over the cliff. But in the midst of the storm, you discover a cleft in the ice where you can hide. Here you feel secure, but even though secure, the awesome might of the storm rages on, and you watch it with a kind of trembling pleasure as it surges out across the distant glaciers. Piper continues, There remains this trembling and awe and wonder and that you would never mess with this storm. So it is with God. You fear God, you have a safe place to watch the storm. Hope turns into fear, into a trembling and peaceful wonder. And fear takes everything trivial out of hope and makes it earnest and profound. The fireside fellowship is all the sweetest when the storm is howling outside the cottage. See, God is gracious, but he's also holy. And when we come into the presence of a holy God, it's like a butterfly trying to land on the surface of the sun. The greater we understand his holiness, the greater we understand the character of God, the greater we're thankful for his grace and his mercy. 
And there are many songs that speak of this. It's the old song I recall. Amazing Grace says, "'Tis grace that taught my heart to fear." And it was grace that motivated Joseph, who was now called Barnabas, to, to lay down possessions and to pick up people. And the reason why Barnabas was able to do this is because his possessions didn't possess him, that he possessed his possessions. And because he possessed his possessions, he was able to live an incredibly great story. He knew that it was all God's. There was no denying it. He knew that it was all God's and God could take it from him any moment. And God had given him every single solitary penny of it. But we struggle with this, don't we? We think it's ours. I think something else we struggle with is the fact that we think, okay, when we just attain this certain financial goal, when I just make this amount of money, when I just have this in the bank account, when I just own these assets, when I just am able to do this, then I'll lay down my possessions and pick up people. I need to do this benchmark, but here's, let me tell you, from personal experience, okay, let me just share with you this, that there's always just a little bit more you need, isn't there? You you get to this certain point, like, okay, what if I just could just get this? Here, here's the fact of the matter. that There are tons of people in this world today living and making a really good living. But there are even more people living poor lives. So friends, would you choose today? Would you make the decision to not let your possessions possess you? And when you make that decision and you begin to enact that into your life, you're able to step into an incredible, great story. And that's what Barnabas was able to do. He would put down his possessions. He'd pick people up. And as he begins to do that, we understand and see how he does it. And I want to just give you four quick things in what he does and how he's able to pick people up. Number one, he is an encouragement. He's an encouragement. And we see that right from what we had just read, that he was given the nickname Son of Encouragement. He was Mr. Encouragement. He was Mr. Attaboy. He was Mr. I'm going to come alongside of you and champion you on. I want to ask you, are you Mr. Encouragement? Are you Miss Encouragement? Are you Mr. and Mrs. Encouragement to your wife, your husband, your children, your parents, your family, your coworkers, your community? You're like, well, I don't know. And, maybe, and you may say, I don't know, and I, I don't know how to do that. Let me, let me ask you this. Let's just think about it for a second. How are those people wired in your life? May, are they encouraged through kind words? What would it look like to simply just say to them, look, I'm in your corner. I got your back. You got this. You got this, and you're championing them along. You know, that, that's what Barnabas did. He was one of the first people to welcome Saul in the early church. He was a killer. Barnabas says, I trust you. I believe in you. He went along with Saul, who became Paul, on one of his missionary journeys. He would, let her, he would welcome Mark when Mark had been a failure in the past. He was in their corner cheering them on. Or are people in your life, are they wired and, and encouraged by acts of service? Maybe that looks like cleaning something or, or putting away the dishes or cleaning a car or thinking ahead and putting gas in the car or paying for someone's meal or doing this or doing that. But an act of service that tells somebody, look, I'm going to encourage you. Or maybe it's they're encouraged by quality time. That they just love the fact that you're with them, that you're present, that the phone's down, that nothing's taking up your time. You know, friends, Parents especially, I want to speak into your life. You know, kids, they don't want more stuff intrinsically. You know what they want? They just want more of you. 
I'm reminded of that every single day. That my kids don't care about more stuff. They just want dad. So give them more dad. Be in their life. Are they encouraged by gifts? Maybe you could give a little surprise to them. Maybe you could surprise them at their work or whatever the case is and just say, you know what, you're appreciated. I want to encourage you today. Or maybe they're encouraged by physical touch. Maybe a hug or a a pat on the back or an attaboy. Or, Or maybe if you're married, a little something more, okay? You'll get that later, all right? But you're welcome, men, all right? But, he, but be an encouragement. But then we also learn that Barnabas, he would put down possessions and he'd pick up people by demonstrating empathy to others. And here's how we know this. Barnabas was a Levite. And Levites obtained everything they had because they were given things. He was given the land that he donated. He was given the clothes on his back for the most part. So he understood the plight that these people were in. So he empathized with people. And he understood something. When you empathize with people, you will always have friends back. Howard Hughes once discovered, when discovered that he was worth $4 billion, you know what he said? He said, I'd give every penny of it away if I had just one true good friend. And the way you make friends, folks, is to empathize with others. It's not about you, but to empathize with how they're doing, what's going on in their life. Barnabas did this. And the third way that Barnabas, he was able to put down possessions and and pick up people was the fact that he was able to pick people up in his own neighborhood, right where he was from. The the scripture said that he was from Cyprus. And and the scripture talks about how Luke records that the first place he goes is where? His hometown, his own neighborhood. He had street cred there. He He was from the area. He was able to impact that own neighborhood. God wants to use you right where you are. Start right where you are. It's not a mistake where you live. It's not a mistake that you are where you live and that you talk like you do and that you share like you do and you do what you do. You know why? God wants to use you right where you are. He's he's planted you there for a purpose. You can be a Barnabas right there in your community. And And then finally, we see Barnabas. He's able to put down possessions and pick up people as he's able to live his life in such a way that he would not lie to the Holy Spirit. He would live with authenticity, that he would literally live vertically and horizontally an authentic person. There was no Ananias and Sapphira in this man. He understood that, you know, God sees all, he knows all, and so he's just going to live the best he could as God is his representative and that he would not make the Holy Spirit and God look bad with a hypocritical life. I want to ask you, friend, with all the goodness in my heart, are you living a hypocritical life right now? Is what's coming out of here lined up with what's coming out of your life? I want you to honestly ask yourself that question because the text teaches us this. There was a missionary, his name is Jim Elliott, and he's very famous for making a a comment about the song, I Surrender All. You know, how many of you heard of the song, I Surrender All? How many of you sung that song before, I Surrender All? This is what Jim Elliott says. He says, you know what? Christians don't tell lies, but they sing them all the time. And we have to ask ourselves this question, what, what possessions, what things are we holding back and not surrendering to Jesus Christ this very moment. Intrinsically, we're lying to the Holy Spirit. 
I want to ask you that question today, friend. Is, is there something in your life right now that you're holding that would be hypocritical in nature? The good news is this. In 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And I don't know your story. Maybe you walked in today with a past a mile long. Maybe you walked in today carrying something so large. Maybe you've done things that are so very grievous, you're embarrassed by them. And the first thing that you want to do when you've done things that you're embarrassed by is what do you want to do? You want to hide. You want to go back into the shadows. Students, college students, young adults, senior adults, you want to just hide those things. But here's the thing. When you hide those things, those very things hang you. But when you're able to bring them into the light, when you're able to repent, to confess what you've done before Almighty God, you know what he does? He sets you free instantly. Isn't it amazing that when you own up to those things, that is the key to your freedom and liberty in your life, and it no longer rules you, and you step into living an incredible story. I want you to look at this verse one more time with me, 1 John 1, 9. And I want you to just look at the first few words there. What are the first two words? Say that out loud. If we, if we, right? Just like that sparrow lying on his back in the middle of the path, he says, you can do what you can do. And what you can do, friends, is you can come before God as you are today, and you can say to him, I'm sorry. I've been a prodigal God, whether it's been just an hour of prodigal living or it's been a lifetime. God, I'm sorry. I repent this morning. And the great news is this, that God is going to set you free. He's going to redeem you. He's not going to look down upon you. And let me tell you this, this pastor, this guy will not look down on you either. And, and this church will not either. You know why? Because we are not perfect people, but we want to live lives. Live lives that are true and honest and real, just like Barnabas. One of my favorite authors is Tim Keller. And I absolutely love the definition that he gives. It says this of the gospel. He says, You are more wicked in God's sight than you ever realized, yet you are more loved and accepted than you've ever dreamed. And God loves you. And he's passionate for you. And you, my friend right here today, in this very spot, he welcomes you to repent and come before you just the way you are. Because his son already died for you. Past, present, and future sins. All done on the cross. And he's waiting for you. Would you stand with me? I want to ask you a question. And, and, and before anyone goes anywhere, before you think of the next thing you're going to do, I want to ask you a real question today. Before you and God, is there something in your life that you need to come clean about? If God's going to use this church, we got to come clean. If God's going to use this church to impact this community like we dream about, in Palmyra and all the other places, we got to live lives before a holy God.